0: Well, again, good morning, and happy Mother's Day to the moms. I've got a question for you. Who would you say is the most famous mother in the world? The most famous mother in the world, alive today. (laughs) Yeah, alive today, all right. I'm going to offer that I think the most famous Mother alive today, you have to look outside the United States. I would suggest Kate Middleton as the most famous mother in the world today. She is, after all, the Princess of Wales, the wife of William, who's the future King of England. And Kate is constantly in the headlines. And Kate's children are constantly in the headlines. Just this past week, if you watched the coronation celebration of King Charles III, by the way, it was the first coronation in 70 years. It was a significant event, a spectacular event. I loved watching all the pomp and circumstance and all of that, but probably my favorite part of the entire ceremony was watching uh, Kate and William's kids. It was spectacular. I read an article this week. The headline said, Prince Louis, George, and Charlotte steal the show at King Charles's coronation. I love watching those kids, especially Prince Louis, this five-year-old boy, the grandson of the king. It was awesome watching him during this real serious event. I mean, he was waving to the crowd. He was swaying and dancing, kind of like some of our kids were here just a minute ago. Um, but also at a certain point, Prince Louis, he was spotted yawning there in Westminster Abbey. And he was quickly whisked away by his nanny and just disappeared from the ceremony. Um, But it was incredible. I love uh, just watching those kids. It was fantastic. But the truth is, it's cute when the five-year-old grandson of the king doesn't quite understand or recognize the majesty before him. But it's not so cute when adults do it, right? I mean, when you're in the presence of majesty, it's expected that people show some respect. And if that's true for King Charles III, how much more infinitely true is it when in the presence of true divine majesty, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords? But sadly, what we're going to see together this morning in Mark chapter 2 and into Mark chapter 3 is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the people who should have recognized the majesty of Jesus, instead they choose to challenge him. I want to invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 2 And take out your outline as well from your bulletin. And you can see we're going to look at five challenging questions here in Mark chapter 2 and in Mark chapter 3. These five challenging questions are what really advance the storyline, the narrative here in Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 3. Five challenging questions. Challenging Christ about forgiving sin. Challenging Christ about eating with sinners. Challenging Christ about fasting. Challenging Christ about the Sabbath. And then finally, number five on your outline, we will see a challenging Christ. Grab your Bibles, open up with me. Let's look first at number one on your outline. Challenging Christ about forgiving sin. Mark chapter 2, let me read for you verses 1 through 4. John Mark tells us, When he, Jesus, had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, being unable to get To him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above the door which they had dug an opening, and they let down on the pallet the paralytic where he was lying. I want you to stop right here for a second and just imagine this scene in your mind. This really piggybacks off what we saw last week at the end of Mark chapter 1. Remember, Mark chapter 1, it ends by showing the rise in Jesus' popularity among the people. Everywhere Jesus goes, more and more people surround him. They want to see what's going on in and around Galilee with this new man, Jesus. The popularity of Jesus is rising and rising and rising, and we're reminded of that here yet again now in verse 1 of chapter 2. He's back in Capernaum, and there's so many people, verse 2, gathered together. There's no longer room, not even near the door. And notice, Mark reminds us yet again, Jesus is speaking the word to them. And there in the middle of this chaotic scene with more and more people surrounding Jesus there in Capernaum, now enters this amazing scene where this paralytic is carried in by his four friends. But John Mark tells us that they're not able to get to Jesus because of the crowd, because of the multitude of people, so they go up to the roof, they dig a hole in the roof and they lower the paralyzed man in through the roof to where Jesus is. Again, this is, this is an amazing scene as these four friends lower their paralyzed friend down through the roof just to get to Jesus. But what I want you to notice is Jesus' surprising statement to the man, verse five. John Mark tells us, in Jesus seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, we might expect, because the man is paralyzed, we might expect Jesus just to jump to the healing, right? That's what he's been doing all thus far. So we might expect, if we were reading the Gospel of Mark for the first time, we might expect Jesus to say, son, get up, take your pallet, and go home. That's what he's going to say later. But first, Jesus says to the man, sons, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is a shocking statement, and and notice the response of the religious leaders in verse 6. Here we come to the first challenging question. Verse 6 of chapter 2 says, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So here we come to the first challenging question aimed at Jesus. Jesus. The scribes, the religious leaders, they've heard Jesus say to the man, your sins are forgiven, and now they start notice reasoning in their own hearts. They're thinking this in their own minds. They've not said it out loud. They're reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They accuse here Jesus in their minds. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. So if Jesus is claiming the authority to forgive this man's sins, then he must be claiming to be God. And so for that reason, in their hearts, they're reasoning in their own minds and they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy. So notice what happens as a result, verse 8. Immediately, there we see that word again. Immediately Jesus aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves said to them why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say get up pick up your pallet and walk but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Don't you wish you could have seen this? Like, this is absolutely incredible. Jesus demonstrates his authority not only to forgive sins, but he demonstrates the authority to heal this man. Jesus really does three amazing things here in these verses to demonstrate his authority. He forgives the man his sins. He heals the man. And Jesus also hears the secret thoughts in the minds of the Pharisees. Jesus claims the authority to forgive sins. He demonstrates the authority to heal the paralytic. And he demonstrates the authority to know the secret thoughts of the religious leaders. This is amazing, right? This is we, all the evidence they should have needed to know that they were in the presence of divine majesty. But sadly, what we see here, and we're going to see throughout this section is that the religious leaders, they are in the presence of divine majesty, but instead of recognizing it, they challenge Jesus. Sadly, their challenging of Jesus does not stop here. Let's take a look at number two on your outline. Challenging Christ about eating with sinners. Notice Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Notice again, John Mark reminds us that more and more people are coming to be around Jesus, and more and more Jesus is teaching them. Verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Here we see the calling of Levi, or also known as Matthew, the son of Alphaeus. Now John Mark reminds us, he tells us, that Levi is a tax collector. He's a tax collector in the service of Herod Antipas, who is the ruler of Galilee. And such persons, like tax collectors, they were especially despised. They were considered to be traitors by their fellow Jews because they helped collect funds for their Roman oppressors. In the Talmud, tax collectors are lumped together with murderers and thieves. This is the scum of the earth, if you're a first century Jew. And if Levi was a tax collector in Capernaum, then he was almost certainly well known and despised by the other followers of Jesus, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. But shockingly, Jesus here calls Levi or Matthew to follow him. And not only that, but notice what happens next in verse 15. And it happened that while he was reclining at the table in his house, in Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, here's challenging question number two. Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Notice again verse 15. We see the crowd of people increasing around Jesus. But this time, the crowd includes tax collectors and sinners, many tax collectors and sinners, John Mark tells us. And Jesus has the audacity to dine, to have fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. Now, the Pharisees were especially concerned about food laws. And you were simply not allowed to associate with tax collectors and sinners And so what Jesus does here is shocking because he's expressing trust and fellowship with these people. And so they ask Jesus the second challenging question there in verse 16. Why is he eating with and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? How can Jesus eat with such unclean people? Well, notice Jesus' reply, verse 17. And Jesus, hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I love Jesus' reply here. When challenged about his association with tax collectors and sinners, he reminds the Pharisees and all who are hearing the very reason why he came. Jesus came to save, to heal, to call sinners to himself. Jesus puts on display the very reason why he came, and that is to associate with people like you and like me. Listen, I can't go any further in this text without asking you the question if you have put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the very reason why he came, to save sinners. He did not come to uh, call the righteous, the self-righteous, but he came to call the sinners like you and me. And I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation here in this room or watching online, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, if you don't know with certainty that you are forgiven redeemed and reconciled with a holy God because of Jesus, then I want to invite you to put your faith in him. But I love that even at the beginning of this gospel, we're reminded of the fact that Jesus came to fellowship with outcasts and sinners. He came to save sinners, the very thing that only God can do. And once again the religious leaders here in the text they are in the presence of divine majesty but instead of recognizing Jesus they challenge him and sadly their challenging of Jesus doesn't stop there take a look at number 3 on your outline challenging Christ about fasting mark chapter 2 let's look first at verse 18 John's disciples, that is John the Baptist, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So here we come to a controversy, a challenging question about fasting. This is the third of the challenging questions. We're told that the disciples of John the Baptist, as well as the followers of the Pharisees, they all fast. Now, God had commanded that all Jews fast every year on the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees, like they often do, they take it several steps ahead and beyond what God had intended, and the Pharisees specifically decided to fast twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. And so I think It's on one of those occasions, a Monday or a Thursday, perhaps on the same day that Jesus is found feasting in the home of Levi or Matthew, son of Alphaeus, that the Pharisees see what's going on and they offer the third challenging question, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast? So notice Jesus' reply, verse 19. Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. In other words, Jesus answers their question about why he's not fasting, why his disciples are not fasting with a story, with an illustration. He says, listen, it doesn't make any sense to fast during a wedding feast. You don't fast during a wedding feast. When you have the bridegroom there, it doesn't make any sense to fast. But he says the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away, referring, I believe, to his death, and then they will fast. Jesus here highlights the fact that his presence with them The divine majesty among them should have been an occasion for joyous feasting, but not fasting. Then Jesus goes on to explain himself further. Notice verse 21. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Here Jesus uses two more illustrations, very common to a first century audience, about mending a garment and the process of wine. First, he says, listen, you don't sew a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old garment, because if you do, the patch pulls away and you end up with the worst tear. Likewise, you don't put new wine into old wineskins because the gases as they're released are just going to burst the old wineskins, but you put new wine into new wineskins, now, what's the point of this illustration? We don't live in this first century world. Most of us, you may have experience with patching a garment, but most likely you don't have an experience of putting wine into wineskins. What Jesus is doing here is he's demonstrating that he did not come to repair broken Pharisaism. Jesus did not come to patch or repair broken Pharisaism, but instead he's bringing something completely new and joyful He's bringing, in fact, the very presence of God among them. But once again, what we see here, number three on your outline, is that for the third time, the religious leaders, they're in the presence of divine majesty. But instead of recognizing Jesus, they challenge him. They challenge him. And their challenging of Jesus doesn't stop there. Take a look at number four on your outline. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees, here's challenging question number four. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So here on another occasion, it happened that Jesus and his disciples are passing through the grain fields. And notice it's on the Sabbath, which is a very significant detail in the story. As they're traveling along through these grain fields, they're picking the edges of the grain. And by the way, this was permissible. This was allowable by God as a provision for travelers. You see this in Deuteronomy 23. God allowed the edges of the grain fields to be picked for those who were traveling. The problem is the Pharisees viewed this as reaping or working on the Sabbath. And so they here in verse 24 demand an explanation from Jesus. The challenging question we see is, why are they, your disciples, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, according to their rules. So notice Jesus' reply. Verse 25, he says to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and he and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest's, And he, David, also gave it to those who were with him. So here, Jesus answers their fourth challenging question by now, referring to David, King David in the Old Testament. You see this story, by the way, in 1 Samuel 21. In the days of Abimelech, who was the father, and Abiathar his son, David enters the tabernacle court, he's hungry. He and his travelers are weary, he asks for the consecrated bread, and the priest allows him to eat it because he recognizes that human need was more important in that moment. So here Jesus, as he's answering the question, the challenging question of the Pharisees, he refers to David's action in the Old Testament. But then notice what he says in verse 27 and 28. This is the real kicker here. Jesus then said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. All throughout these verses, we've seen Jesus' demonstration of his authority his authority to forgive sin, his authority to heal. And here he's claiming authority over the Sabbath. Remember, the Pharisees had all of these rules surrounding what could and could not be done on the Sabbath. But here Jesus reminds those listening that God's gift of the Sabbath was not meant to be burdensome, but it truly was meant to be a gift. The Sabbath was made for man's benefit. You could paraphrase Not man for the Sabbath. But then the real kicker is in verse 28. He says, The Son of Man is Lord. He has authority even over the Sabbath. This is the fourth time now that the religious leaders are in the presence of divine majesty, the Son of Man. And yet instead of recognizing Jesus' authority, they challenge him. Now let's take a look at number five on your outline. Here we see a challenging Christ. It starts in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. John Mark tells us, He, Jesus, entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now we find ourselves here in a similar scene. Jesus is in another synagogue in and around Capernaum, in and around Galilee. And John Mark tells us that there in that synagogue service, there was a man whose hand was withered. But then in verse 2, we're told that they, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were watching Jesus to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The word for watching means observing and scrutinizing. This particular word for watching is used outside of the New Testament to describe people who are watching arrested criminals, convicts, to make sure they do nothing wrong. In other words, this is not a casual watching. But they're purposefully scrutinizing every move that Jesus makes. Once again, we're told that it's on the Sabbath. They're watching him so that they might accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. So notice what Jesus does, verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And then he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. What I want you to notice is that at this point, the dialogue is over. The conversation is done. The Pharisees ask no more questions. Instead, something different happens. Now Jesus asks the Pharisees a challenging question. After calling the man forward, he asks the religious leaders, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? What's the point of the Sabbath? To do good, to save, or to do harm and kill? And the answer is obvious, right? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift of God to the Jewish people. It was, in, it was designed to do good. But notice, to the challenging question of Jesus. John Mark tells us that they keep silent. They say nothing. So verse 5 tells us, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. John Mark tells us Jesus looks around at them. A word describing an all-inclusive, penetrating look. He looks deep within them. John Mark tells us Jesus is angry. The only explicit reference to Jesus' anger here in the Gospel of Mark. And John Mark tells us that Jesus is grieved at their hardness of heart. He's grieved at their obstinate insensitivity. Jesus Looks around at them in anger. He's grieved at their hardness of heart. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Again, put yourself in the scene for a moment. Pretend that you're there in this synagogue service and you see this event take place. Jesus heals this man with a word. He simply tells him, stretch out your hand, and the man's hand is restored. By the way, take note of the fact that Jesus does nothing here that would fall under the category of work or breaking the Sabbath, right? He simply speaks to the man. The man stretches out his hand, and his hand is restored. But notice what happens. Verse 6, instead of rejoicing, at the divine majesty in their presence, instead of rejoicing over what God has done, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, under normal circumstances, the Pharisees and the Herodians would have nothing to do with one another. The Pharisees, of course, were the strict religious Observers, following the letter of the law and everything, and even beyond it. The Herodians were the political compromisers. They conspired with Rome. These two parties, these two groups of people who under normal circumstances had nothing to do with one another, now conspire together proving the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And notice they conspire together as to how they might destroy Jesus. The irony, of course, is that this is done on the Sabbath. And Jesus raised the question, Jesus just raised the question, is it, the Sabbath designed to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill. And here the true Sabbath breakers, the Pharisees and the Herodians, begin conspiring with one another as to how to destroy Jesus. So now for the fifth time, the fifth cycle, we see here that Jesus' presence, His divine majesty, The religious leaders, instead of recognizing him, now they seek to destroy him. So again, put this in contrast with what we saw last week. Last week was super encouraging. It's building up Jesus' popularity. Everywhere he goes, he's teaching, he's healing, and the crowds are pressing in around him. More and more people want to be around Jesus. As Jesus teaches and preaches and heals, his popularity, popularity soars. But here... Mark chapter 2, beginning of Mark chapter 3, it's kind of a downer passage, right? Because Jesus is doing the same stuff. He's teaching, he's healing, but what we see here is that as Jesus is teaching and healing, his controversy, his conflict with the religious leaders also rises. So what do we do with a passage like this? How do we apply Mark chapter 2 and... Beginning of Mark chapter 3. Well, once again, I propose to you, we need to ask three questions. As we look at these verses, this five cycles of challenging questions, three questions we need to ask. Number one, what did Jesus do here? Number two, how did the people respond to what Jesus did? And then number three, how should we, therefore, respond to what Jesus did? So first, what did Jesus do? Once again, just like last week, we saw that Jesus was teaching and preaching. We saw that Jesus was healing. We saw that Jesus is saving sinners. We see Jesus demonstrating his authority over all aspects of Jewish faith and life. But how did the people respond to what Jesus did? Here, Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 3 really focuses in on the response of the religious leaders. So how did the religious leaders respond to what Jesus did here? well, instead of recognizing that they were in the presence of divine majesty, instead of accepting Jesus' authority, they instead challenge Jesus' claims of authority and end up conspiring to destroy him. So the third question we should ask is, how should we, therefore, respond? As we see what Jesus does here in Mark 2 and 3, as we see how the people, the religious leaders, wrongly react against and challenge Jesus' authority over their life, should raise the question for you and for me, how do we respond to Jesus' claims of authority? To put it another way, let me ask you a challenging question. How do you challenge Jesus' claims of authority over your life. See, the Pharisees aren't the only ones to do this. Since Genesis 3, human beings have been challenging God's authority over our life. You do it, I do it, we all do it. There's this part of our fallen human condition, our sin, where we challenge the authority of God over our life. We challenge Him over and over and over and those of us most skilled at challenging the authority of God over our life do it by hiding behind religious ritual and legalism just like the Pharisees do here we excuse our insubordination to the authority of Jesus by hiding behind man-made religion But I think what we see here in Mark chapter 2 is that God's rule, Jesus' rule, challenges every other claim to power and authority. Jesus challenges every other claim to power and authority, even ours, over our life. Because he's the son of man, the one who has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Because he has the one authority over all things in heaven and on earth, he has authority over you and over me as well. One commentator said this, I love this statement. He said, the wonder of this passage is not that Jesus was eventually rejected by the religious leaders, but that he was not rejected and killed sooner. The wonder, really, when you think about it, is not that Jesus was rejected and killed by the religious leaders, but that they didn't do it sooner. Because that's what we do when someone claims authority over us, is we challenge it, we push it off, even to the point of killing him off. Listen, this is a downer of a passage, but John Mark here at the beginning of his gospel is really setting the stage for what is to come. And what I want you to do is remember that this entire series is set under this idea of following Jesus in a fallen world. In the Gospel of Mark, each and every one of us is invited to follow Jesus in a fallen world. And one of the things we need to realize at the very beginning is that if we're going to follow Jesus in a fallen world, then we need to expect that Jesus through his word is going to challenge us along the way. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to challenge the wrong thoughts, words, and actions of our life, just as he did in the lives of the religious leaders then. And so there on the back side of your outline, your one thing for this week is this. My challenging question for you is to ask yourself, how might Jesus be challenging certain thoughts, words, or actions in your life? So that you will follow him in a fallen world. Again, it's cute when the five year old grandson of the king doesn't acknowledge divine or majesty before him. But when the religious leaders of Jesus' day, or when followers of Jesus in our day, don't recognize his divine majesty, all it does is grieve Jesus. And harden our hearts, and so instead of choosing that path, let's instead acknowledge Jesus' majesty and humbly worship him as we sing together at the cross and king of glory. Would you pray with me, Father? We do confess that, like the Pharisees, we challenge you we. Because we're sinners, we don't like to be told what to do or how to live. And so, Father, we ask that you would forgive us. And we would invite you, Jesus, to challenge us in all areas of our life. As we go through this gospel of Mark, reveal those areas of our life, reveal those things, our actions, our thoughts, our words, where we need to feel that conviction. We humbly ask, Father, that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to live for you as we follow Jesus. Help us to know the joy of living in obedience to you. Help us to follow Jesus. We invite you, Father, to challenge us through the convicting work of your Spirit and through the word of your Son, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.